welcome back to Basic Bible 101. Today we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Uh, last week we had talked about King Solomon and all of his wisdom. We had talked about that he wrote the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastics and Song of Solomon. We aren't going to cover those books in detail because this is Basic Bible. And so instead I want to encourage you to read those on your own. But today we are going to do a quick recap of the rest of the kings. The major kings we've already covered. Um, the first king, King Saul. Second king, King David, and the third king, Solomon, uh, David's son. Each of those kings reigned about 40 years. After this, after King Solomon dies, um, initially the kingdom is um, supposed to go to his son, Rehoboam. And so his son, Rehoboam, steps up and says, yes, um, I'm the new king. And yet, there's some dissension because, remember, Solomon wasn't, he had done, a, he built this temple. He had actually been kind of hard on his people. And so there was some dissension among all the other tribes that, all the things that originally Samuel had said would happen, that their sons and daughters would be brought in to be servants of the king, that they would be heavily taxed, um, that they would be giving a portion of all of their crops and livestock. Well, remember the people all, are all very doing very well right now and therefore they're seeing a lot of their personal wealth being siphoned off for the king. So there is this uh, sort of irritation and also because they've, they've been at a time of peace so there hasn't been a reason to really rally behind a king. And so the fact that Solomon was kind of hard on his on the people um, brought about a little bit of a discord. And so the people, the, the head uh, leaders of the various tribes, come to Rehoboam and they say, Rehoboam, your father was hard. He was a hard taskmaster. Now how are you going to be? How are you going to rule? And Rehoboam says, well, I'll get back to you on that. And so he goes to his uh, two sets of advisors. One, which is the young men, his buddies, and one, which is an older set, um, which pretty much were there at the time of his father, um, who who have been who are seasoned advisors. So he says to, he asks the seasoned advisors, the elders, um, what should I do? And their advice is back off of the people a little bit, give them um, some space, um, let them enjoy this time. Uh, your rule will be established um, with, if the people have fa find favor with you. Now the young men all said, well, who are these people to tell you what to do? You need to say, if you thought it was hard with my dad, you just wait. Um, I'm going to put an even heavier yoke on you. He'll uh, say to these people, my father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Okay, I don't know about you, but if I had to hear either one, of the, one of the two of those messages, I'd have gone with the first one. Seems a little politically um, risky to say, if you thought it was bad before, you just wait. Now, I'm sure that they're, the part of what was driving the young uh, advisors was that you need to establish your control right up front. You need to make it clear from the beginning who's in charge. Whereas the older guys were saying, this has already been... Um, we're already having good times. There's no reason to come down hard on the people. Instead, become somebody that they like. And they are two totally different approaches to leadership. 
But in the case of Israel, where there was already some dissension, that's about all it took for the tribes to start saying, huh, I don't think we want a king anymore, at least not that one. Now, one of Solomon's top uh, officials was named Jeroboam. And Jeroboam came from one of the other tribes, not from Judah, and had quite a bit of standing with the people. Well, when Solomon dies and uh, King Rehoboam says, this is the way it's going to be, Jeroboam is one of the ones that leads the rebellion and says, oh, no, it's not. And it had already been prophesied at the time that um, Solomon had was following after other gods. God, when God told him he was going to rip the kingdom from his hands, from his uh, children, his descendants, um, into tiny pieces. Well, at that same time, a prophet had gone to Jeroboam and said, "The kingdom, the, all of the kingdom's going to go to you, except for uh, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin." And so. Jeroboam already kind of knew what was coming, kind of the same way that David did, because uh, the prophet Samuel had anointed him before, while Saul was still king. So here we have Jeroboam, who's sort of saying, well, I, you know what, I just don't think this is going to fly. And so the kingdom basically splits at this point. There's a civil war, and then they agree to just split. Uh, Judah and the smaller tribe of Benjamin, which is just tiny at this point, uh, stays with uh, Rehoboam, Solomon's son. But all of the northern tribes, everything, and if you have your original map of where the 12 tribes settled, you can see that everything north of Judah, all of those other uh, 10 tribes went with Jeroboam. It is during, from here on out, the kingdom is split. There's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. They're still called Israel, but the capital of the southern kingdom in Judah is Jerusalem, whereas the capital of the northern uh, kingdom, uh, Israel, is Samaria. Uh, When we talk about, you know, clear down the line, when we get done with the Old Testament and we get into the New Testament, and Jesus refers to... uh, well, we hear the story of the Good Samaritan and how the Samaritans were disliked among the Israelites. That's why, because Samaria represented all the northern kingdom, and because Jerusalem was supposed to be their main place of worship, because the northern kingdom, you know, Jeroboam didn't want his people going down into Jerusalem to, to worship, they established a worship place up in Samaria. And so. Um, there not only was there the conflict between the two tribes uh, politically, but there was also one religiously in the way that they worshipped. Okay, uh, just to give you a little rundown on some of the kings of Judah, after Rehoboam, Rehoboam's only king for about 17 years, and then um, his son reigns, uh, Abijah, for only three years, and then after that, his son, Asa, Asa, uh, reigns for 41 years. Now, um, the Asa was a good king. He did what was right. He destroyed the idols in, in Judah. He, there was kind of a reformation that took place during his time. But up until then, they still followed a lot of the worship of idols, etc. Uh, during the same period of time, for about 50, 60 years in here, we see that Jeroboam rules for 22 years. 
and they instigate this golden calf worship. Um, they, remember, they're trying to do things to get people to say it's okay to worship up in Samaria. So they set up all kinds of high places where they worship. Um, after him, his son uh, Nadab is king for just a couple of years. Then he's murdered. Um, the guy who murders him, Basha, uh, was king for 24 years, and he was not a good king, did evil in the sight of the Lord. In fact, as you're reading through First Kings, you will see that phrase mentioned again and again. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. Um, after his 24, 24 years of uh, being a king, his uh, son Elha, E-L-A-H, uh, took over, and he was an evil king too. Um, he was eventually killed by another guy called Zimri, who was only king for seven days, but he was unsupported by the army, and so he just committed suicide. I mean, we don't see anything really pleasant happening with the northern kingdoms. Um, towards the end of this 50-year period, 60-year period, we see Amari, O-M-R-I, Amri, who is uh, king for about 12 years. Uh, he's a very capable military leader. Uh, but he was also deeply into idolatry. So it's during this time that we see so much um, conflict between the north and the south that neither neither side was doing very well in the kings. They, they just, the kings did not really seek the Lord, with the um, exception of Asa, who was the one that, Asa or Asa, I'm not sure how you say it, who... Um, was king for quite a long time, 41 years, and there was the um, changes that took place as far as, def, you know, turning away from idol worship. It did. It lasted into the next kingdom, um, kingship, which was Jehoshaphat. For 25 years, the kingdom of Judah was um, ruled by Jehoshaphat, and he was a good king. He was obedient to God's laws uh, and encouraged the people to be. Um it is during the time of Jehoshaphat that there are a couple of kings of Israel that are not good kings, that are weak, that are um, deeply into sin. And we're going to focus on those, at least one of them, a little bit more in detail today because we're going to get into the story of the prophet Elijah. Okay, Elijah comes along at about this time. He is a very unusual prophet. If you've heard anything about John the Baptist, he is... Uh, John the Baptist is often said to resemble Elijah because Elijah pretty much just lived out in the desert and ate locusts and honey and was just kind of a backwoodsy kind of guy. Um, he was the prophet during the time, uh, in the northern kingdom primarily, um, during the time of Ahab. Ahab was one of the worst kings of Israel. He married a woman called um Jezebel. You've heard the story of somebody being a Jezebel. Well, this is where the name comes from, is that Jezebel was very wicked and very deceitful, always working behind her husband's back, and really pulling the people to worship Baal, you know, an idol. And in fact, she set up so many temples and hired all these priests, um, all for the worship of Baal, or Baal, however you say it, B-A-A-L. So it is uh, during the rule of Ahab that we see this showdown between Elijah and the um, basically Jezebel. Okay, 
if you had some time to read, I'm hoping that you are in about First Kings verse or chapter 17, and we see that Elijah, who's a Tishbite, um, I don't know where Tish, Tish, uh, Tishba is, but you could look on your maps and find it, or else Google it. Um, we see that he comes to Ahab, the king of the northern tribes, and he says. Um, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except by my word. Okay, so um, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you. So God says this to Elijah, after Elijah has made this prophecy to Ahab, that it's not going to rain for several years. Well, of course, the people are dependent on rain. That's how they water their crops. That's how they uh, feed, water their livestock. And so this prophecy, which is given so that Ahab will wake up and see that there is a God above all of this um, false worship that he needs to be following. And so um, in the meantime, God's going to take care of Elijah in this. And so he takes him to this, the Kirith Ravine, and there he really does take care of him during the time of the drought, which takes place. And the drought gets worse and worse. There's a little widow that we learn about in uh, chapter 17 who has, she's down to her last cup of flour and a, a little bit of water left in a jar and she's going to make the last meal for her and her son and then she figures they'll die because there's there's nothing else and so it's at this time that uh, Elijah comes along and uh, he says give me make me a piece you know make me a little cake with what you have okay now the widow was thinking this is the last that I have and he, this man wants me to give it to him but she must have sensed that he was uh, a man of God um, she says you know all I have left is this little bit of flour a little tiny bit of oil um, and I'm gathering a few sticks to make a little fire and after this I'm gonna die with my son and Elijah says to her don't be afraid go home do as you have said but first make a small cake of bread for me uh, and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. So this woman, in faith, uh, says, Okay, and that's what she does. And sure enough, from that point forward, she never ran out of food uh, for her family, for, for, her son, for her and her son. Uh, the oil didn't run out, and the flour didn't, barrel didn't, uh, couldn't, be emptied and so um, it's during this time that Elijah um, sort of kind of hangs around this family and, and kind of makes it more or less his home and he, he says to the at one point the woman uh, comes to him and says something's wrong with my son he, he's become ill well, Elijah gets there and realizes that the son stopped breathing so Elijah lays down on top of him and breathe into him what we might call mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation possibly um, but in this process the child comes back to life and what has happened is Elijah has prayed to God and said this widow who was good to me and now you've brought tragedy tragedy onto her um, let this boy's life return and God hears his prayer and sure enough the boy uh, returns to life 
So we see right away that Elijah is a very powerful prophet. Not only can he say it's not going to rain for many years, three years I think is what it ends up being, but um, also he can help bring someone back to life. Okay, then in chapter 18 we see that three years have passed and God has said, okay, go back to Ahab. And so Elijah does, and on the way he runs into a guy named Obadiah. Obadiah is an amazing minor player in the Old Testament, but he's a truly godly guy. He, he was a devout believer in the Lord, and while Jezebel, uh, the wicked queen, was killing off all of the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah was hiding them in a cave so that they, and providing them with food and water so that they could survive. Uh, so what happens is that, you know, Elijah comes up to Obadiah and says, uh, I'm going to go talk to the king. Now, Obadiah is a little bit nervous about this, and he's, he's kind of like, well, are you sure you're going to be here? Because I don't want to go tell Ahab that, I, that you're here and then have you just disappear. What is basically saying is, you know, I know you're a man of the spirit, and God's spirit could just whisk you away. And so uh, Ahab, or, um, Elijah says, no, no, I'm here. I'm going to talk to him. So he goes in front of Ahab, and he says, you're going to have to decide who you believe. Do you believe in God, the God of Israel, or do you believe in the Baal? Because if Baal is strong enough to, you know, if he's really God, then he can stand up to a contest. So he basically challenges Ahab to a contest between the prophets of God and the prophets of Baal. And they call this the showdown on Mount Carmel. This is at the end of chapter 18 where this takes place. And what happens is that Elijah goes up onto this mountain and he prepares this big altar he it's, has all kinds of wood around it. In fact, he builds this um, elaborate, very much out of dry wood because, remember, most of the wood was dry. They hadn't had rain yet. And then he uh, butchers a ox or whatever it is and lays it on the altar and prepares, and, um, prepares to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, before he gets to the point of sacrificing his ox, he waits for the prophets of Baal. And they go to all kind of elaborate work to build an altar, and then they sacrifice. But what Elijah says is, no, no, we're not going to light the fire around the altars to burn up the sacrifice. We're going to pray, and whosoever God is more powerful will cause the sacrifice to be consumed. You know, well, just spontaneous combustion. And so the prophets of Baal think, well, I don't know, but we'll give it a try. So they begin to pray to their God to cause fire to come up and consume their offering. And this goes on and on all day long to the point that Elijah begins to start taunting them. In fact, he'll say, oh, so much for your God. He's, he looks like he's really doing a great thing there. And it just makes the prophets of Baal more and more angry. Um, finally, when they just could stand it no more, Elijah says, Okay, come to me and we will see who really is God. Because the people of Israel have come to watch this showdown. Uh, great entertainment, I guess. 
And so on this altar that Elijah has built, uh, basically he stacked up some stones. He put all kind of wood around all this. Then he says to the assistants, uh, the prophets of God, pour water over it, pour more water over it. And so they keep pouring a third time. He says, pour even more water on, around it. It He had dug a trench around the altar, and that trench was totally filled with water. So all of this is soaking wet. And Elijah turns to God and he says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O God, answer me. So these people will know you, O Lord, that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Uh, In verse 38 of chapter 18, it says, Then the fire of the Lord fell, burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and licked up all the water in the trench. So there was no doubt who was God here. What an amazing, exciting time, and what a thing to see. And the people, of course, were astonished, but people's hearts are so fickle, and they they just follow the flash in the pan of the day. So, But we see here that Elijah has made this great statement, and the prophets of uh, the Most High God are suddenly empowered. They begin striking down the prophets of Baal at, at Elijah's command, and he says, don't let one of them get away. And so... Um, It's at this point that he says to Ahab, Go eat and drink, for the sound of heavy rain is coming. So Ahab, who's just been, you know, amazed by the whole thing, heads back, and he is in his chariot. Well, obviously, Jezebel doesn't like this at all, because it has totally messed up her nice little uh, worship methods that she had going, her little um, cult. And so... You know, basically, there's tremendous strife between Ahab and Jezebel. And Jezebel is so furious at Elijah that she says, I'm going to have him killed. That's all there is to it. Well, Elijah um, basically grabs his um, his coat that he's wearing, kind of tucks it in his belt, and takes off running. And he manages to run faster than Ahab's um, chariot. And he gets back and he starts realizing, I'm a dead man. As Ahab is telling Jezebel what happens, she just decides, okay, he's going to be killed. And so Elijah, who has just had such a high experience, suddenly is so afraid of this woman that he takes off running. And he runs out into the desert and he hides. Okay, I know you're probably thinking, wow, someone who could command all this fire down from heaven and make this big showdown and kill off all these false prophets, why would he be afraid of this one woman? And honestly, I think it's because she held such power. She held such power over Ahab and because she was a servant of the devil. She really was. And so this is not so much a battle between Ahab and Jezebel and Elijah as it is the forces good and the forces of evil so Elijah thinks he's been overcome he's he's thinking oh no what have I done he has a momentary lapse of faith and as he runs out uh, into the desert he's exhausted he's tired and he lays there and thinks that he's going to die in fact he prays take my life I am no better than my ancestors and he falls asleep it's really all he, he just he gives up 
uh, so defeated at this. I'm sure that he probably in his heart hoped that there would be such a outcry for the Lord God that um, even Jezebel would be stirred by it or overcome. And yet Ahab is still king and obviously he still gives most of the credence for his decision making to Jezebel. So in this part of what we see, um, this low point, point for Elijah, he is in by this broom tree and an angel appears and feeds him and says, get up and eat. And then he falls back to sleep again and the angel says the second time, get up and eat for the journey was is too much for you. So he got up and he got strengthened with the food and he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Now what do we know about Horeb? that this is down in the area where the Ten Commandments were given. It's what was uh, Moses saw the um, burning bush and said, uh, this is holy ground. So Elijah has run to the Lord to hide in, in the mountain, basically. And it's while he's in the mountain that he appeals to God. In fact, he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, Put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. But God says to him, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now remember, until this point, no one had ever seen God. And so it was surely death to see God. And yet, so sure enough, that's what happens. Elijah goes, and he waits for God to appear. And there's a great powerful wind that just sort of tears everything in the on the mountain apart. And then there's this earthquake that takes place. But God isn't in the earthquake and he's not in the windstorm. And then there's this soft, gentle, oh wait, then there's a fire. And the fire, uh, you know, just is consumes a great part of the mountain. And in all this, Elijah's thinking, well, where's God? He told me to show up here and wait for him. And then there's this gentle whisper, and Elijah heard it, and he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of this cave. And then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. They're trying to kill me. And the Lord says to him, Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel, king over Aram. I don't know why this little side feature is there. It seems to have nothing to do with the rest of the story. He gives him a few other instructions. He says, um, and by the way, you're not the only one. I still have 7,000 people in Israel who haven't bowed down to, to Baal. Isn't this just like God to take us at our lowest point? We want to see him in everything all the most uh, mighty, miraculous uh, things going on around us. And yet it's in a still, small voice that he, he speaks to us and reassures us that we're not the only one, that he has everything under control. So it's also about this time that um, Elisha comes along, which is Elijah's protege. We'll learn more about him next week, but I'm hoping that you got today a little glimpse of what God was doing in in during this time of the divided kingdom. In fact, it is through various prophets that he speaks to the people because he cannot trust the kings at this time. Uh, their hearts are divided. Even when a good king comes along, he's quickly followed by a bad one that just cares nothing for the Lord. 
So it's kind of a sad time in Israel from here on out. Um, go ahead and spend some time finishing up the, the book of First Kings and, and getting into the first part of Second Kings. We would have gotten into Second Kings today, but we took quite a bit of time covering the first little bit about what was going on during the dividing of the kingdom. Next, For our next lesson, we will talk about Elisha, um, the one who follows Elijah. Elisha is compared frequently to Jesus Christ as because he's a much different animal than Elijah was in the same way that, that Jesus was much different than John the Baptist. Even though both were, um, Elijah and Elijah both spoke powerfully for the Lord. They did it in quite different ways. Uh, some things are similar though. So take some time and go ahead and read through the rest of First uh, Kings and you'll see a little bit about what's going on at this time. There's a lot of skirmishes among the people and there's a, there's a holy battle going on for their um, a lot allegiance whether they're going to follow God or whether they're going to follow the idols and remember from the beginning it's one of the this the very first ten commandments you know I'm God have no other idols before me all right um, I hope that you've learned today a little bit, bit of something about Elijah and um, how how he operated the fact that um, he was had the big showdown on Mount Carmel the fact that he uh, helped this widow to uh, son to come back alive uh, the fact that God spoke to him in a gentle whisper and reminded him he was not the only one. And when you get discouraged in your faith and you think, I'm the only one that believes this way, uh, may the Lord just come and whisper to you and remind you that there are many, many across the, around the world believers in Christ who are uh, faithful and will be till the end. Okay, um, some other things remember that... Um, Sometimes we just don't, you know, when we're the most, have the most high spiritual time like Elijah did on Mark, Mount Carmel, it can be followed by the lowest low, and that's to be expected. So, um, but God is there. He sends his angels to minister to us in the highs and in the lows. Okay, remember that you can get more information about a lot of this um, from their website at uh, www.basicbible101.com and uh, if you'd like to order the um, homework workbook, you can. It's got, I, I'm not sure if it has the maps in there and so it may be that there are links on the website that allow you to get to some of the maps of uh, what the kingdom looked like at this time, the northern versus the southern kingdom. Okay, thanks for joining us, and until next time, be blessed.